Section 92 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Section 92, Part 2, Book the Eighth, Chapter 2, Impartiality. The creation of an equality with the king, called peerage, was, in barbarous epochs, a useful fiction. This rudimentary political expedient produced in France and England different results. In France, the peer was a mock king. In England, a real prince. Less grand than in France, but more genuine. We might say less, but worse. Peerage was born in France. The date is uncertain, under Charlemagne, says the legend. Under Robert Lesage, says history, and history is not more to be relied on than legend. Favin writes, The king of France wished to attach to himself the great of his kingdom by the magnificent title of peers, as if they were his equals. Peerage soon thrust forth branches, and from France passed over to England. The English peerage has been a great fact and almost a mighty institution. It had for president the Saxon Wittenagemote, the Danish Thane, and the Norman Vavasur, commingled in the Baron. Baron is the same as Vir, which is translated into Spanish by Varon, and which signifies par excellence. Man. As early as 1075, the barons made themselves felt by the king, and by what a king? By William the Conqueror. In 1086, they laid the foundation of feudality, and its basis was the Doomsday Book. Under John Lackland came conflict. The French peerage took the high hand with Great Britain, and demanded that the King of England should appear at their bar. Great was the indignation of the English barons. At the coronation of Philip Augustus, the King of England, as Duke of Normandy, carried the first square banner, and the Duke of Guyenne the second. Against this king, a vassal of the foreigner, the war of the barons burst forth. The barons imposed on the weak-minded King John Magna Charta, from which sprang the House of Lords. The Pope took part with the king, and excommunicated the lords. The date was 1215, and the Pope was Innocent III, who wrote the Veni Sancte Spiritus, and who sent to John Lackland the four cardinal virtues in the shape of four gold rings. The lords persisted. The duel continued through many generations. Pembroke struggled. 1248 was the year of the provisions of Oxford. Twenty-four barons limited the king's powers, discussed him, and called a knight from each county to take part in the widened breach. Here was the dawn of the commons. Later on, the lords added two citizens from each city, and two burgesses from each borough. It arose from this, that up to the time of Elizabeth, the peers were judges of the validity of elections to the House of Commons. From their jurisdiction sprang the proverb that the members returned ought to be without the three P's, sine presse, sine pretio, sine poculo. This did not obviate rotten boroughs. In 1293, the court of peers in France had still the King of England under their jurisdiction and Philippe le Bel cited Edward I to appear before him. 
Edward I, was the king who ordered his son to boil him down after death, and to carry his bones to the wars. Under the follies of their kings, the lords felt the necessity of fortifying Parliament. They divided it into two chambers, the upper and the lower. The lords arrogantly kept the supremacy. If it happens that any member of the commons should be so bold as to speak to the prejudice of the House of Lords, he is called to the bar of the House to be reprimanded, and occasionally to be sent to the Tower. There is the same distinction in voting. In the House of Lords they vote one by one, beginning with the junior, called the puny baron. Each peer answers content or non-content. In the Commons they vote together by aye or no in a crowd. The Commons accuse, the peers judge. The peers, in their disdain of figures, delegated to the Commons, who were to profit by it, the superintendents of the exchequer thus named, according to some, after the table-cover, which was like a chess-board, and, according to others, from the drawers of the old safe, where was kept, behind an iron grating, the treasure of the kings of England. The year-book dates from the end of the thirteenth century. In the War of the Roses, the weight of the lords was thrown, now on the side of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, now on the side of Edmund, Duke of York, Watt Tyler, the Lollards, Warwick the Kingmaker, all that anarchy from which freedom is to spring, had for foundation, avowed or secret, the English feudal system. The lords were usefully jealous of the crown, for to be jealous is to be watchful. They circumscribed the royal initiative, diminished the category of cases of high treason, raised up pretended Richards against Henry the Fourth, appointed themselves arbitrators judged the question of the three crowns between the Duke of York and Margaret of Anjou, and at need levied armies, and fought their battles of Shrewsbury, Tewkesbury, and St. Albans, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. Before this, in the thirteenth century, they had gained the Battle of Lewis, and had driven from the kingdom the four brothers of the king, bastards of Queen Isabella by the Count de la Marche, all four usurers, who extorted money from Christians by means of the Jews, half-princes, half-sharpers, a thing common enough in more recent times, but not held in good odor in those days. Up to the fifteenth century, the Norman duke peeped out in the King of England, and the Acts of Parliament were written in French. From the reign of Henry the Seventh, by the will of the lords, these were written in English. England, British under Uther Pendragon, Roman under Caesar, Saxon under the Heptarchy, Danish under Harold, Norman after William, then became, thanks to the lords, English. After that she became Anglican. To have one's religion at home is a great power. A foreign pope drags down the national life. A Mecca is an octopus and devours it. In 1534 London bowed out Rome. The peerage adopted the reformed religion, and the lords accepted Luther. Here we have the answer to the excommunication of 1215. It was agreeable to Henry VIII, but, in other respects, the lords were a trouble to him. As a bulldog to a bear, so was the House of Lords to Henry VIII. When Wolsey robbed the nation of Whitehall, and when Henry robbed Wolsey of it, who complained? Four lords, Darcy of Chichester, St. John of Bletchow, and 
two Norman names, Mount Joey and Mount Eagle. The king usurped, the peerage encroached. There is something in hereditary power which is incorruptible. Hence the insubordination of the lords. Even in Elizabeth's reign, the barons were restless. From the resulted, the tortures at Durham, Elizabeth was as a farthingale over an executioner's block. Elizabeth assembled Parliament as seldom as possible, and reduced the House of Lords to sixty-five members, amongst whom there was but one Marquis, Winchester, and not a single Duke. In France, the kings felt the same jealousy, and carried out the same elimination. Under Henry III, there were no more than eight dukedoms in the peerage, and it was to the great vexation of the king that the Baron de Montes, the Baron de Courcy, the Baron de Colomiers, the Baron de Chateauneuf en Thimeray, the Baron de La Fere en Lardenois, the Baron de Montaigne, and some others besides maintained themselves as barons, peers of France. In England, the crown saw the peerage diminish with pleasure. Under Anne, to quote but one example, the peerages became extinct since the twelfth century amounted to 565. The War of the Roses had begun the extermination of dukes, which the acts of Mary Tudor completed. This was indeed the decapitation of the nobility. To prune away the dukes was to cut off its head. Good policy, perhaps, but it is better to corrupt than to decapitate. James I was of this opinion. He restored dukedoms. He made a duke of his favorite, Villiers, who had made him a pig. 22. A transformation from the duke feudal to the duke courtier. This sowing was to bring forth a rank harvest. Charles II was to make two of his mistresses duchesses. Barbara of Southampton and Louise de la Queroil of Portsmouth under Anne, there were to be twenty-five dukes, of whom three were to be foreigners, Cumberland, Cambridge, and Schomburg. Did this court policy, invented by James I, succeed? No. The House of Peers was irritated by the effort to shackle it by intrigue. It was irritated against James I. It was irritated against Charles I, who, we may observe, may have had something to do with the death of his father just as Marie de Medici's may have had something to do with the death of her husband. There was a rupture between Charles I and the peerage. The lords, who, under James I, had tried at their bar extortion, in the person of Bacon, under Charles I, tried treason, in the person of Stratford. They had condemned Bacon. They condemned Stratford. One had lost his honor. The other lost his life. Charles I was first beheaded in the person of Stratford. The lords lent their aid to the commons. The king convokes Parliament to Oxford. The revolution convokes it to London. Forty-four peers side with the king, twenty-two with the republic. From this combination of the people with the lords arose the Bill of Rights, a sketch of the French droit de l'homme, a vague shadow flung back from the depths of futurity by the revolution of France on the revolution of England. Such were the services of the peerage, involuntary ones we admit, and dearly purchased, because the said peerage is a huge parasite, but considerable services nevertheless. 
the despotic work of louis the eleventh of richelieu and of louis the fourteenth the creation of a sultan leveling taken for true equality the bastinado given by the sceptre the common abasement of the people all these turkish tricks in france the peers prevented in england the aristocracy was a wall banking up the king on one side sheltering the people on the other they redeemed their arrogance towards the people by their insolence towards the king simon earl of leicester said to henry the third king thou hast lied the lords curbed the crown and grated against their kings in the tenderest point that of venery every lord passing through a royal park had the right to kill a deer in the house of the king the peer was at home in the tower of london the scale of allowance for the king was no more than that for a peer namely twelve pounds sterling per week this was the house of lords doing yet more we owe to it the deposition of kings the lords ousted John Lackland, degraded Edward II, deposed Richard II, broke the power of Henry VI, and made Cromwell a possibility. What a Louis Fourteenth there was in Charles I. Thanks to Cromwell, it remained latent. By the by, we may here observe that Cromwell himself, though no historian seems to have noticed the fact, aspired to the peerage. This was why he married Elizabeth Bouchier, descended an heiress of a Cromwell, Lord Bouchier, whose peerage became extinct in 1471, and of a Bouchier, Lord Robersart, another peerage extinct in 1429. Carried on with a formidable increase of important events, he found the suppression of a king a shorter way to power than the recovery of a peerage. A ceremonial of the lords, at times ominous, could reach even to the king, Two men-at-arms from the tower, with their axes on their shoulders, between whom an accused peer stood at the bar of the house, might have been there in like attendance on the king as on any other nobleman. For five centuries the House of Lords acted on a system, and carried it out with determination. They had their days of idleness and weakness, as, for instance, that strange time when they allowed themselves to be seduced by the vessels loaded with cheeses, hams, and Greek wines sent them by Julius II. The English aristocracy was restless, haughty, ungovernable, watchful, and patriotically mistrustful. It was that aristocracy which, at the end of the seventeenth century, by Act the Tenth of the Year, 1694, deprived the borough of Stockbridge in Hampshire of the right of sending members to Parliament, and forced the Commons to declare null the election for that borough, stained by papistical fraud. It imposed the test on James, Duke of York, and, on his refusal to take it, excluded him from the throne. He reigned notwithstanding, but the lords wound up by calling him to account and banishing him. That aristocracy has had, in its long duration, some instinct of progress. It has always given out a certain quantity of appreciable light, except now toward its end, which is at hand. Under James II it maintained in the lower house the proportion of 346 burgesses against 92 knights. The sixteen barons, by courtesy of the Cinque Ports, were more than counterbalanced by the fifty citizens of the twenty-five cities. 
though corrupt and egotistic, that aristocracy was, in some instances, singularly impartial. It is harshly judged. History keeps all its compliments for the commons. The justice of this is doubtful. We consider the part played by the lords a very great one. Oligarchy is the independence of a barbarous state, but it is an independence. Take Poland, for instance, nominally a kingdom, really a republic. The peers of England held the throne in suspicion and guardianship. Time after time they have made their power more felt than that of the commons. They gave check to the king. Thus, in that remarkable year, 1694, the Triennial Parliament Bill, rejected by the commons, in consequence of the objections of William III, was passed to the lords. William III, in his irritation, deprived the Earl of Bath of the governorship of Pendennis Castle and Viscount Mordaunt of all his offices. The House of Lords was the Republic of Venice in the heart of the royalty of England. To reduce the king to a doge was its object, and in proportion, as it decreased the power of the crown, it increased that of the people. Royalty knew this, and hated the peerage. Each endeavored to lessen the other. What was thus lost by reach was proportionate profit to the people. Those two blind powers, monarchy and oligarchy, could not see that they were working for the benefit of a third, which was democracy. What a delight it was to the crown, in the last century, to be able to hang a peer, Lord Ferrers, However, they hung him with a silken rope. How polite! They would not have hung a peer of France, the Duke of Richelieu haughtily remarked. Granted, they would have beheaded him. Still more polite. Montmorency Tancarville signed himself peer of France and England, thus throwing the English peerage into the second rank. The peers of France were higher and less powerful, holding to rank more than to authority and to precedence more than to domination. There was between them and the lords that shade of difference which separates vanity from pride. With the peers of France, to take precedence of foreign princes, of Spanish grandees, of Venetian patricians, to see seated on the lower benches the marshals of France, the constable and the admiral of France, where he even Comte de Toulouse and son of Louis the Fourteenth to draw a distinction between duchies in the male and female line, to maintain the proper distance between a simple comte like Armagnac or Albret and a comte prairie like Evreux, to wear by right, at five-and-twenty, the blue ribbon of golden fleece to counterbalance the Duc de la Tremoille, the most ancient peer of the court, with the Duke Uzes, the most ancient peer of the Parliament, to claim as many pages and horses to their carriages as an elector, to be called Monseigneur by the first president, to discuss whether the Duke de Maine dates his peerage to the Comte d'Eau from 1458, to cross the Grand Chamber diagonally or by the side. Such things were grave matters. Grave matters with the Lords were the Navigation Act, the Test Act, the enrollment of Europe in the service of England, the command of the sea, the expulsion of the Stuarts, war with France. On one side, etiquette above all, on the other, empire above all. The peers of England had the substance, the peers of France, the shadow. 
To conclude, the House of Lords was a starting point. Towards civilization this is an immense thing. It had the honor to found a nation. It was the first incarnation of the unity of the people. English resistance, that obscure but all-powerful force, was born in the House of Lords. The barons, by a series of acts of violence against royalty, have paved the way for its eventful downfall. The House of Lords at the present day is somewhat sad and astonished at what it has unwillingly and unintentionally done, all the more that it is irrevocable. What are concessions? Restitutions, and nations know it. I grant, says the king. I get back my own, says the people. The House of Lords believed that it was creating the privileges of the peerage, and it has produced the rights of the citizen. That vulture aristocracy has hatched the eagle's egg of liberty. And now the egg is broken. The eagle is soaring. The vulture dying. Aristocracy is at its last gasp. England is growing up. Still, let us be just towards the aristocracy. It entered the scale against royalty, and was its counterpoise. It was an obstacle to despotism. It was a barrier. Let us thank and bury it. End of section 92. Recording by William Tomko.